Here's our scripture we'll be working with this morning. It says this in John chapter 8, beginning in verse 2. Early in the morning, he returned to the temple. All the people gathered around him, and he sat down and taught them. The legal experts and Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. Placing her in the center of the group, they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone women like this. What do you say? They said this to test him because they wanted a reason to bring an accusation against him. Jesus bent down and wrote on the ground with his finger. They continued to question him, so he stood up and replied, Whoever hasn't sinned should throw the first stone. Bending down again, he wrote in the dirt. Those who heard him went away one by one, beginning with the elders. Finally, only Jesus and the woman were left in the middle of the crowd. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Is there no one to condemn you? She said, no one, sir. Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, don't sin anymore. Jesus spoke to the people again, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me won't walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In the book, there's a book called Good Faith by David Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons. And they, they talk about what it means to be faithful Christians in a world, especially in an American culture, that increasingly views uh, Christianity uh, specifically and religion more generally to be either extreme or irrelevant. How do we be faithful people in a culture like that? David Kinnaman Uh, One of the authors, he's a researcher, he's a very well-respected bearer of hard truth statistics uh, for the Christian church, especially in America, and, and, and especially how we're viewed by a shifting American culture that isn't quite sure what to do with us as it grows less religious every year. And in this book, David Kinnaman tells us that now more than two out of five, more than two out of five, over 40% of people surveyed, believe that when it comes to the problems that our country faces today, religion and people of faith are part of the problem, not the solution. More than two out of five people surveyed said that religion and people of faith are part of the problem, not the solution. I imagine that number is only going to increase in the coming years, and it should give those of us who are still in relationship with the church and with our Christian faith, it should give us pause and a moment of reflection And we ought to be asking ourselves, what do we do when religion begins to go bad? What do we do when religion, especially our religion, begins to go bad? Because I think that religion had gone bad by the time that Jesus found himself in this temple scene that we just read. I think religion had begun to gone bad in Israel. He finds himself in the temple confronted by these religious leaders bearing heavy stones and heavier hearts and he enters into this conversation with them that was meant to be a cornering, right? They don't have his best interests at mind, but instead it becomes a moment of conviction for those very leaders, for the very experts who thought they had Jesus in a religious trap. 
While Jesus is teaching in the temple, he, he sees this group of Pharisees and Sadducees. It's these religious uh, scribes and leaders who are responsible for teaching and enforcing the Jewish customary laws. They approach him with a woman whom they claim they've just found in the act of committing adultery. What do you say, they ask him, just laced with sarcasm. What do you say? They couch this question in the law of Moses. And if we go back and read the law of Moses, it's true. I mean, it, is, it takes a hardline stance against adultery. And it even endorses the death penalty in some cases. But you know what's interesting is that if they had bothered to read the Levitical law that they appear to be referencing, they would know a couple of things. Number one, where's the guy? It's hard to have an affair on your own, yeah? And in fact, the Levitical law, it imposes punishment on both parties, but specifically the man, because the whole point of the law at the time is to protect the land and property and, and estate of the man in the event of an affair so that all of his property and assets goes to his wife and his children and not to somebody else. So they've missed the whole, not only have they missed the spirit of the law, that much is clearly evident when we read this story, they've also missed the letter of it. They're really bad lawyers, right? They're really bad at it. And maybe that's why Jesus ignores them. It's one of the more hilarious parts of our Bibles, and, and especially when we consider it in the time in which it was written. Rather than getting dragged into this conversation with a, a, a bunch of you know, wannabe legalists, Jesus bends down and begins to write with his finger in the sand. And, and a lot of people want to speculate as to what, you know, what was he writing? What did he write in the sand? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what he wrote in the sand. In fact, if it really mattered that much, guess what the author of John's gospel would have done? He would have told us, right? That's what a good storyteller does. They don't leave out the important parts, right? The important part here is that he's not engaging with them. Can you imagine if you come to someone and you're like hot and, and you're ready, ooh, I'm going to get them good, and you, and you go and, and you go to get them and they just, mm-hmm. Um, are you talking? Do, 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 do. You're already uncomfortable, yeah? With me doing this, imagine how they felt. That's the whole point. Jesus didn't engage. It would have been seen as, as rude and even funny. Like Here's this guy trying to get co- being cornered by Pharisees and Sadducees in the temple, and he's playing in the dirt. But here's the thing that we all know is true. Do negative people like to be ignored? Do you have negative people in your life? Do they like to be ignored? Do they like it when you play in the dirt? <laughs> Not really. So they keep badgering him, badgering him, pestering him, pestering him. Finally, Jesus stands up and gives them an answer, but he doesn't answer the question they asked. Instead, he offers them a way to think theologically about this law that they think they know. And he says this, he says, let the one who is without sin cast the first stone. This exchange teaches me something about religion, about even when it started with the best of intentions, and we can all see that our, you know, our ancestors in the Old Testament, they started the, their faithful tradition in a very faithful way. Even religion started with the best of intentions can go bad. Because by the time that this faithful tradition had found its way into the temple, in Jesus' day, and a woman was about to get stoned to death in the house of God. 
I think it's pretty clear that something had gone very, very bad. Two things I know about religion going bad. First is this, religion goes bad when punishing rule breakers becomes more important than loving people into better behavior. I've seen this in my life. Have you seen this in your life, in the life of the church? When punishing rule breakers becomes more important than loving people into better behavior, religion goes bad. And I say this because I'm actually not against the idea of having rules. If you've ever played game night with me, you would know this to be true. I like rules a lot. That's how we have fun, with rules. Amen. I'm not against the idea of having rules. I'm not against the idea of having a clear understanding within your faith of what is considered holy, of what is considered acceptable, of of knowing what's not considered holy, of what's not considered acceptable. Where are the boundaries in your faithful living? I don't think there's a problem with those kinds of things. I think a church without boundaries or a faith that doesn't have any sort of principles or any sort of guide to life feels shallow and naive, especially when I consider a Christian tradition born out of the teachings of Jesus who takes our actions actions very seriously. Read the Gospels. He takes our actions very seriously. So I think that rules are important. I also think that rules have their limits. And I also think that how we respond to rule breaking may be just as important as setting the rules in the first place. Rules in the life of faith exist to show us what holy living looks like to guide our thoughts and our steps in a way that leads to life and the glorification of God. Enforcing those rules ought to redirect us back to a holier way of living. It ought to redirect us back to holiness when we stray. This is where the Pharisees fail when they try to enforce the rules. They are not interested in redirecting the adulterous woman to a more holier life. If they had stoned the woman in the temple, would she have been less adulterous? Or would she simply have been less alive? In response, Jesus shows, that, shows us that if we truly believe in holy living, we ought to love people into that path, not punish them into it. There's another way that I see religion going bad in this story. Religion goes bad when it becomes a tool for our own power and our own glory rather than God's. Have you seen this at work in the world around us? The Pharisees drag this woman in. They humiliate her. They threaten her life with a brutal execution. For what? Because they're just so concerned about her adultery? I don't think so. They wanted to score some points against Jesus, and they were willing to use her to do it. They wanted to flex their muscles and show everyone who was still in charge in the temple. It was a power struggle, plain and simple. They wanted to knock this wannabe Messiah, in their eyes, down a peg, and they're willing to use their religion to do it. The law of Moses became a weapon, and it backfired. Have you seen religion used as a weapon in the world around us recently? I think this is possibly the biggest reason why people in America have an increasingly uh, negative view of Christianity, why they increasingly see us as a problem. They don't see humble servants trying to follow Christ. What they see is loudmouth leaders wielding a Bible like a weapon. And guess what? That's not a very attractive image, is it? In the church world, we'd say that's not an effective evangelism strategy. 
swinging a Bible around, yelling at people, trying to bring yourself power and glory. Read the Bible for five minutes, I challenge you. Just, just give it five minutes and it'll become pretty clear pretty quickly that the Christian faith was never designed for my glory or your glory or our glory or anyone's glory other than God's. And I firmly believe that when we try to use it to build up our own power and our own glory, we will be exposed just like Jesus exposes the Pharisees. They all walked away, one by one, humbled in the end. We can either humbly approach God, or we can humbly walk away when we're exposed, but either way, God will bring us to humility in the end. Amen? So what do we do with the reality that maybe religion has gone bad at times? What do we do if we feel like we're standing in the temple and we see something terrible taking place in God's house? What do we do when we go, oh my gosh, are we part of the problem? Do we throw it away? Just toss it away? I hope not, otherwise I wasted a lot of time and money on seminary and getting ordained. Y'all need to tell me now. You need to pick another major or something. Let's look at what Jesus does next. After everyone has left, and it's just him and this woman in the middle of the crowd, she's probably still shaking from what she's just experienced. Can you imagine? She was moments away from death. And he asks her this poignant question, is there no one here to condemn you? And she looks up at him. And you can almost hear the tremble in her voice, no one, sir. No one. And he says, neither do I condemn you. And then he keeps talking. He says, now go and sin no more. Don't you wish he'd left that last part off? It feels so good right up to that last part. There's so many times in Jesus' teaching where you go, oh, if you'd just put a period there, that would have been great. I mean, how, how powerful to have the room cleared, the condemnation wiped away. Neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. What? <laughs> uh, the snarky side of me wants to say, oh, great, thanks, Jesus. Now all I have to do is be perfect. Awesome. Thank you so much for this grace. I imagine you're like me, and there have been times in your life where you wish you'd left that last part off, but more recently I've begun to embrace that challenge that Jesus offers us, and I'll tell you why. Jesus has already established that he does not believe in punishment for punishment's sake, yeah? He's already made clear that he leans very heavily on the side of grace and mercy. He's already told her that his job is not to condemn but to give life. All of these things are true and they're made apparent in this story. So rather than seeing his challenge to go and sin no more as an impossible feat, what if we embrace this challenge as Jesus making the impossible possible? What if we saw this challenge as perhaps the most gracious thing he could have said because what he's saying is better is actually possible? Life is actually possible. Honor and glory and, and righteousness and holiness, they're possible for you. The woman who was about to die in the temple, it's possible because of who I am. I need to know that my life can get better at times. Do you? Amen? I need to know that the impossible things that I think I'm facing can be possible with God. Do you? Four of you, great. Great. 
What if we embrace that holiness is not a rule waiting to be broken, but something worth striving for even in the face of failure? Because there are a lot of days that I wake up not feeling very holy. And I go to sleep not feeling very holy, and I drive to work certainly not feeling very holy, because i got to drive in traffic every day. Of course, the natural question is this. If we're, if we're supposed to go and sin no more, how? Okay, Jesus, that sounds cool. I like the idea of a clean slate and, you know, I'm going to do better forever. I like, how do I do that? Because for Jewish people, like the woman and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the, the people, the crowd in this temple, the way they had lived holy lives forever, as long as they could remember for centuries, was by following the rules of the law of Moses. And Jesus just totally flipped that on its head. And he took what they thought they, know, what they knew and he just turned it upside down. And when he challenges the letter of the law, the letter of the law of Moses, Jesus puts all of us on equal ground in sin. There's no longer the sort of measuring stick of who's in and who's out and who's holy and who's not. All of us are on level playing ground now. It's like Jesus just said to everyone everywhere, regardless of your status or your power, you are walking in darkness. Let's see what that feels like for a moment. All of it. Take it all. Just hit the Boom. We got the backlights. That's embarrassing. Okay, don't look in the back of the room. Don't, you're not allowed to look back there. It'll ruin the sermon illustration, okay? Jesus just brought us here. And it's not a very comfortable place to be, yeah? Who likes sitting in darkness? Anybody? Who's scared of the dark? Yeah? Who's getting more scared as Case turning off lights in the back of the room? You're like, wait, are we really turning those off too? <laughs> it's not a comfortable place to be. But here's the problem. If we try to get up right, right now and walk out of the room, if you try to stand up in a room like this when it's pitch black dark, what's going to happen? You're going to bump into chairs, bump into people, bump into the wall. By the time you get out, you're going to be so broken and bruised and bleeding. It, you're you're going to be a mess. There's no way to do that well. So we're here. Jesus brings us here, and then what are the next words out of his mouth to the crowd? I am the light of the world. Anyone who walks in me walks in the way of life. Now if I tell you to get out of the room, where are you going to go first? Or better yet, if I were to offer you this light, whoops, it's touch sensitive. If I were to bring this light to you and offer to lead you out, would you follow? I would. This is the offer that Christ makes when he calls himself the light of the world because he knows that finding your way out of darkness on your own is an impossible task. He knows that religions based on rules of punishment leave people just broken and bloody and bruised. He knows that to find a way of holiness, we need something beyond us to light the way. All right, we can bring the lights back up. Oh, wow. He knows what we need now is no longer a written law, but a living law. And that's exactly who Jesus is. He knows that if we want to find life, the life that God has waiting for us, we need first to be in relationship with God's own light here on earth, we need a relationship with Jesus Christ, the light of the world. 
And when Christ's light begins to live in us, not only do we begin to live more holy lives in and of ourselves, we begin to bring glory to God. We begin to share light outside in a world that is in darkness that needs a light desperately. We become light bearers. It pours out of us. It doesn't just stay inside. I want to close today talking about a couple stories where I've seen light in the darkness this past week. Uh, Two institutions that I think are light bearers in our own community. The first is about Parkland Hospital, which in addition to being our county hospital here in Dallas, it's also where my own mom has worked for more than 20 years as as a registered nurse and also as an IT analyst more recently. And so our family has a special love for Parkland Hospital. And to say Parkland is a a busy place would be an understatement, yeah? You want to hear some mind-blowing numbers for a second? In 2017 alone, Parkland saw more than a million outpatients. They had performed over 20,000 surgeries. One guy. No, I'm kidding. Um, They responded to over 250,000 ER visits, and they birthed 12,000 babies to boot. (laughs) Parkland is busy. Yeah. Parkland is busy. I heard stories about Parkland busy, how, how busy Parkland was my whole life growing up. But Parkland is not so busy that they notice something that gets easily overlooked. I learned this week that Parkland participates in a program called No One Dies Alone. Have you heard of this? This program was started in 2001 in Oregon by a nurse named Sandra Clark. She had an experience with a patient who was dying who had no one to be with him, no family, no friends. And all she did was she sat with this person. She sat with this person for their final hours till their final breath. And it changed her and it made her realize there are more people like that all across the country. And so she started this little program that has now exploded. It's It's in hospitals all across the country. It's taken off all across the country where people, volunteers will sit with patients who have no one else to be with them as they die. Just to give them the dignity and humanity of having someone to hold their hand to tell them it's going to be okay, to remind them they're not alone. Now, Parkland does this a little bit differently, though. See, most hospitals, they run it through their chaplaincy office, and and, and Parkland does as well, but most hospitals, what they do is is they recruit volunteers from outside in the community to come in and, and perform this task, and it's great. But Parkland is a teaching hospital through and through, They take that very seriously. It's part of their DNA. And so their chaplaincy office, they actually recruit med school students to be the volunteers for four-hour shifts at a time to sit with these patients as they die. Now, you already know how busy Parkland is. Can you imagine being a med school student at Parkland Hospital? Like, do you sleep for four years? I don't think you do. And yet these students are taking an additional four hours at a time out of their lives to sit with patients who have nobody else. And look, you tell me if that doesn't make our community a holier place because of what Parkland's doing. You tell me if that doesn't make those students far superior doctors and medical professionals one day because they've been through that experience. You tell me if that doesn't make an impact on the way that we understand light in the city of Dallas. Because these people, they're alone. They've got nobody. Many of them are homeless, but they've got somebody at our hospital. It speaks about the enormous value of life that Parkland Parkland feels. The other institution I want to give thanks for this morning is actually this church that we call home. And I can brag on this church because before I was a pastor at this church, I was a member at this church. 
In many ways, this church helped save my faith when I felt like religion had gone bad. I remember coming to this place, very first time interviewing for a part-time position in the kids' ministry, the land of glue and glitter. Say amen, somebody. And I was nervously awaiting my meeting with the senior pastor who I didn't know yet. Um, It was the first time that I met Stan, and little did I know that I was not only going to meet my future boss, but I was going to meet a man that would change the way I understood faith and became a great mentor to me. Everything about that day surprised me. Everything from driving up here and seeing the size of the homes around this church, I was like, my home can fit in these homes. To then walking in the doors and seeing the emphasis on missions and outreach in this really wealthy place, I thought, wow, I didn't expect that. How cool. And then learning how diverse this church was in the middle of Preston Hollow of all places. And the last surprise was meeting the boots wearing East Texas having senior pastor who called me Scotty. I knew something about Stan was different on that day. Something about this church was different, and I wanted to be a part of what God was doing here at Lover's Lane and what God was doing through its leader. So what I've discovered in the more than seven years of working and worshiping at Lover's Lane is that this place is the right kind of weird. Amen? I think it's religion gone right. (laughs) And that has a lot to do with our senior pastor. Earlier this month, Stan celebrated his 20th anniversary of being appointed to here at Lover's Lane. On April 1st, that was his 20th year anniversary, right? No joke, April 1st. He came to a congregation that needed a preacher with the pastor's heart. They needed a visionary who could help guide them and understand how they could be the church that embraced its identity of welcoming all people, especially those rejected by religion gone bad. When Stan arrived, he came to a church that worshipped in one place, the sanctuary, with one style of worship, traditional, and if I'm being honest, we probably had about one type of person come to church at Lover's Lane. And today, in 2018, we worship in eight different worship styles, in five different worship venues, in at least a half a dozen different languages every Sunday, and we do that because we found a common shared mission of loving all people into relationship with Jesus Christ, a mission that Stan helped us find when he came. That mission, loving all people into relationship with Jesus Christ, that mission has been a light for thousands, a comforting word of grace in a world riddled with condemnation. Here we look at you and say, do you see anybody condemning you? Neither do we. This past week, as an example of life's intersections, I actually found myself at Parkland Hospital as part of my ministry here at Lover's Lane. I was on a pastoral care visit, and um, I was visiting a woman. Her name's Odette. She's the mom of a couple students, one of whom's name is Terry. I've talked about him in, in here before, and, and Terry and I met each other a few years back, and, and we've been through a lot together. Um, Terry and his family are all from, uh, they came here by Rwanda, but they're originally from uh, Uganda, Democratic Republic of Congo, around there. Odette was in the hospital. She was just getting checked out. She, they took good care of her. She's fine now. Um, but I went and visited her, and it was just Odette in the room, and Odette speaks very broken English. So I knew we were just going to be doing a lot of smiling and nodding, you know. 
And, uh, and she was just so happy that I was there, and I was so happy to be there. And I wanted to pray with her, but I knew that if I prayed, like, she would enjoy that, but she wouldn't know everything I was saying. So I, luckily, she was on the phone with her husband, Francis, who does speak English. So we put him on speakerphone, and we had a prayer with her husband translating on speakerphone while I was holding her hands. Now, that is a first, let me tell you. And it's, it's a simple story. That's, that's all there is. Um, but it's a beautiful story because when else, how else would I have been able to encounter this family if not here at Lover's Lane? And, and, and how else would I have encountered this family and gotten to know them and been in a hospital room praying over speakerphone with a translator if not for a leader who said this place needs to love all kinds of people and all kinds of people showed up. And, and there's a million stories just like the one that I shared, simple stories, little stories of human connection, of grace that we share with people that we never would have met outside these walls. I think maybe that's one of the greatest gifts this church has given me, the connections that I have. It's made possible because of a commitment that that you all have, that this church has of loving all of God's children, and that's a commitment that Stan has championed for his 20 years of ministry here. And I say all this, this isn't just some random like, is Scott in trouble with his boss? Why is he saying all these nice things? Today, we are going to celebrate Stan's 20th anniversary following our whole morning of worship. So after worship, y'all can go to brunch, you can do whatever you want, you can go to Sunday school, small group, we've got a Thrive small group, simple plug for that. Um, whenever, you are, whenever you're done with your, your morning routine, come back at 12.15, we're going to meet over in the Serenity House and we're going to celebrate Stan. And I would love to see Thrive there. Because I know we only see Stan in here, you know, every several weeks or so. But this space, this group, this community wouldn't be possible without Stan's leadership four years ago saying we need something different at 930. So I hope that you'll join me at 1215 in the Serenity House. I hope you'll join me in honoring a man who stepped into a difficult situation here at Lover's Lane, who has pastored us well, and who has allowed us to be a church that stands tall, as I think religion gone right, that says... We don't condemn you. We are here to love all people in a relationship with Jesus Christ.